this is Nate Gillum, and this is another episode of Black Men's Friday. During the last episode, uh, we explored the notion of race, the origin of race, and how racism developed. I'd like to mention in this context a, a wonderful documentary uh, titled Exterminate All the Brutes by Rahul Peck. Uh, you can see it on HBO. Uh, he is a great filmmaker and documentarian, and he helps to bring together so many of the historical facts to help us make meaning out of all these historical facts we've been gathering uh, since uh, the internet was developed, and we have so much uh, access. And he helps us to make meaning of these facts around the subjects of extermination, genocide, and colonization. He also wrote, I Am Not Your Negro, uh, which also premiered on HBO. So I hope you get an opportunity to look at those. Let's venture into the maintenance of racism. We talked about the origin and development, but let's talk about the maintenance of racism by examining the modern practice of racism in the United States. Again, this is BMF, Black Men's Friday, and we're discussing racism, the modern practice of racism, and the attitude of anti-blackness that supports the practice of racism. What was the impact of slavery on the country in terms of building it? And how does the country respond to the formerly enslaved and their ancestry? The impact of racism was and continues to be this attitude of anti-blackness that is pervasive in most systems of the country's infrastructure. And by that, I mean everything from our banking system to uh, how we distribute housing and access to real estate, employment practices, uh, our law enforcement system, our judicial system, and most systems that organize, that's organizing our society or that we're organized around in our daily life. Racism and anti-blackness is pervasive through all of these things. So what did the enslaved build in this country, uh, we must ask ourselves. And the answer, of course, is practically everything. Our rail, railway systems for transporting goods, ports of entry uh, along every all of our coastal lines and uh, Great Lakes, all of the major cities uh, from one coast to the other, including the nation's capital, which, by the way, is a good example of anti-blackness because our capital, Washington, D.C., is not a state because it is a majority black city and always has been. Therefore, Congress, even today in 2021, refuses to give the capital city any legal representation in Congress. What does that mean? Well, taxation should lead to representation, but not so for blacks living in Washington, D.C., they don't have a congressman like you and I do. They don't have a senator. They don't have a governor, but they can serve in the military. That's interesting, isn't it? They can fight for the country, but not be represented in Congress. So in spite of everything the labor of the enslaved created in this country, there remains an attitude of disdain, an attitude I call anti-blackness toward uh, those that were enslaved then 
and their ancestry rather than the country being grateful for the pirated labor of African Americans. So this episode looks at the attitude of the country toward African Americans, the attitude I label anti-blackness. And what were the attitudes of the white majority towards the formerly enslaved and how did it impact their lives as they made their way out of slavery and made attempts to acquire wealth, independence, and power. But we must also recognize the accomplishments of our ancestors as we examine these issues as well. The story of their resilience and the power they acquired in spite of anti-blackness. Anti-blackness impacts the wealth of black people and as we'll see, anti-blackness impacts the number one way in which Americans for the past century and a half tends to accumulate wealth. And you know what that is? Home ownership. That's the number one way in which African-Americans and anyone uh, can accumulate wealth in the United States. And it's the number one way in which wealth is passed from one generation to the next. And as you'll see, anti-blackness has a huge impact on home ownership. The state of wealth in an African-American community is a direct reflection of the attitude the white majority has of black Americans. So let's take a closer look at this today. In order to do that, we must go back to Reconstruction or life at the beginning or near beginning of the 20th century. Reconstruction uh, occurred between 1865 and 1877, following the turbulent era of the Civil War. And it was an effort to reintegrate Southern states back into the Confederacy, into America, and to create a nation, an entire nation as one as well. And then to integrate the 4 million newly freed people into the United States as citizens, those African-Americans would now be citizens with full rights, uh, which had been denied since 1444 when the uh, people of Angola were invaded by the uh, Portuguese. Uh, I'd like to look at one author. Her name is Carol Anderson, a wonderful book. I hope you can uh, consider purchasing it. It's called White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide. The Confederate South, uh, she remarks, lost 20% of its white male population. The Confederate South lost one in every five uh, white men during the Civil War and the Confederates attempt to maintain the rights of slaveholding states to maintain the system of slavery. So 620,000 white men died in order to maintain a system of oppression where labor was pirated and the rights of those um, African people of African descent uh, would not be recognized. So it was in defense of slavery. Uh, what kind of attitude and commitment was necessary for the nation to give up one-fifth of its white male population in the South and that of entire communities in order for the right to oppress other people. This attitude of white supremacy that developed over, had developed over the last 500 years of oppression was that of anti-blackness or anti-anyone who was not white or deemed white. Even as blacks built the infrastructure for the country, which created the greatest amount of wealth for any nation in human history, this wealth was acquired 
by stolen or pirated labor. However, the attitude towards black uh, by such men were evidence among whites in the North and in the South. So let's examine these attitudes um, towards the social, legal, and economic progress of African-Americans by examining the first attempt to empower blacks after slavery. And that first attempt was called the Freedmen's Bureau. Uh, America's reconstruction uh, era following the Civil War, Civil War was very turbulent and the nation struggled to rebuild the South. The Freedmen's Bureau though was established by an act of Congress on March 3rd, 1865, two months before Confederate General Robert Lee had surrendered to uh, the Union's uh, General Ulysses S. Grant, who became president later, effectively ending the Civil War. And then the Freedmen's Bureau was established under President Lincoln. But guess what? He was assassinated. And the vice president who became president was Andrew Johnson, pretty much a sworn enemy of African-Americans. Uh, he hated the notion of the Freedmen's Bureau, thought it was too lenient. Uh, the Freedmen's Bureau was intended as an agency to last during the uh, duration of the Civil War and one year afterward. The Bureau was placed under the authority of the War Department and the majority of its original employees were Civil War soldiers themselves and under the command of Oliver Otis Howard, a Union general, and he was appointed over the Bureau in May of 1865. And that's the same Howard, who uh, the university, Howard University, was named after. It was established in 1867. So the Freedmen Bureau had many successes. Uh, it was organized into 11 districts over 11 rebel states, and each district was headed by an assistant commissioner. The Bureau's achievements varied from one location to the next, but there were only 900 agents across 11 states. And now these agents um, who acted much like social workers do today, they were frequently on the only federal representative in any of these Southern communities. They were often subjected to ridicule and even violence from uh, whites, including uh, terrorist organizations such as the Ku Klux Klan, who viewed the agents as interfering in local affairs by trying to assist blacks. While some agents were corrupt or incompetent, others were hardworking and brave people who made significant contributions to the area, but they faced this attitude of anti-blackness and the Ku Klux Klan and other terrorist organizations rose against them. White or black, if the um, Freedmen's Bureau representative was present, so was the Klan. During its years of operation, the Freedmen's Bureau fed millions of people after the Civil War. It built black hospitals and provided medical aid for uh, formerly enslaved. It negotiated labor contracts for ex-slaves and settled labor disputes between farmers and then those who tended farms. It also helped former slaves legalize marriage. That was very important and it helped to locate lost relatives, those who were removed from their families and sold into slavery. And it assisted black veterans after the war in order to acquire property or to get employment or medical care or be reunite, reunited with their families. 
So the Bureau was instrumental in building thousands of schools as well for African-Americans and helped to find such universities, uh, develop such universities, as I said before, Howard University in Washington, Fisk in Nashville, Tennessee, Hampton in Virginia. The Bureau uh, worked in conjunction with uh, the church, the American Missionary Association and other private charity organizations in order to make a network that helped uh, in formerly enslaved people. The Bureau showed the potential racial equity and progress could have for this country. It exemplified the resilience of black people and the nation as a whole, regardless of race. Additionally, the Bureau tried with little success to promote and, uh, and redistribute land that was confiscated by the Union. However, most of the confiscated and abandoned uh, Confederate land was eventually restored back to the original owners, those who were enemies of the state, by President Johnson, even though that land was confiscated as in enemy territory. There was little opportunity for black land ownership under President Johnson, which was, which was seen as a means to success in society for those four million black people. So the Bureau started to face a demise. So in the summer of 1872, Congress responded in part to pressure from white Southerners to dismantle the Freedmen's Bureau. And we can see this in the attitude of um, many people today uh, as they look at the progress of African-Americans uh, and other forms of um, legislation that helps blacks, such as affirmative action. Since that time, historic, historians have debated the agency's effectiveness, effectiveness. An opposition to its funding, coupled with the politics of race and reconstruction, meant that the Bureau was not able to carry out all of its initiatives, and it failed to provide long-term protection, uh, physical protection for blacks or ensure any real measure of racial equity. President Johnson withdrew federal troops that protected black communities and their rights as citizens, such as uh, acquiring education or land or employment or the right to vote. The Bureau failed due to opposition of that funding and an attack on black progress by white politicians, business leaders, and white terrorist organizations such as the Klan and the White League which are today's equivalents of the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers. These terrorist groups physically attacked teachers, black or white, in black schools, whether uh, they were black or white teachers they were attacked in, as well as attacking those who would support the rights of blacks to vote. Much like today's Republican Party attack on voting rights, as we see in Congress and in the Senate. And today the Senate is supposed to vote on voting rights, on the Voting Rights Act. The attitudes of whites in general was to oppose any kind of progress that followed, that focused on the rights of, or restitution for black people. So, the Bureau's mission was further muddled by the fact that among the agency's supporter in Congress and his own personnel, there was disagreement over what type of assistance the government should provide and for how long. There was opposition to reparations, even though 
those who were enslaved, raped, murdered, families split apart, were easily were easily found and uh, made up the majority of African Americans at the time. Unlike today's uh, attempt towards re- reparations, where uh, folks often say, "How do you prove that you're a descendant of African Americans?" Uh, which seems kind of ludicrous to me. So, Northern Democrats um, also opposed the Bureau's work. Although African Americans had built the country on their backs of stolen labor, Northern Democrats painted the Bureau as a program that would help lazy African Americans. Interesting, after all that labor, after 300 years of labor, unpaid labor, to call African Americans lazy. And finally, Ulysses S. Grant had transferred um, General Howard, the head of the Freedmen's Bureau, to Arizona and did not notify him that the uh, Freedmen's Bureau was being dismantled. Those who could not vote were not eligible uh, to serve on juries and could not run for local offices. So ensuring that blacks could not vote also meant that juries could only be white and that blacks could no longer run for office. They effectively disappeared from political life. Black, black Americans disappeared from political life as they could not influence state legislatures and their interests were overlooked. So we see many uh, ways in which the Freedmen Bureaus helped to uh, allow blacks to vote, but pulling the southern, um, the northern troops out of the southern states ensured that blacks could no longer be re- represented in government and that their interests could no longer be represented either. The Freedmen Bureaus had many success over a short period of time and left alone could have changed the direction of the country for hundreds of years uh, as a world leader uh, in civil rights and economic parity for all citizens. However, the attitude of anti-blackness stunted the growth of the nation of the Freedmen's Bureau and led to another brutal, very brutal era of white violence, Jim Crow, lynchings, and the rise of white terrorist organizations that exist today. It was evident as white terrorist groups stormed the Capitol on January 6, 2021, uh, chanting, hang the vice president, the speaker of the house, and overturn the election of the United States. So let's look at, uh, look closer at attempts by blacks to flee white terrorism during the early 20th century and to flee white uh, anti-blackness as the attitude of the majority community that governed uh, all of the communities blacks had lived in. So blacks went north and did they face anti-blackness in the north? Yes, they did. There were scores of attempts of black men and their families uh, to flee terrorism and migrate to the north. Uh, But when they came north, they faced such issues as mass incarceration, workplace discrimination, brass instruments. And those who don't know, brass instruments were developed by universities, which measured the thickness of a person's lips or the curliness of the hair, the color of their skin, in order to correlate that with their intelligence 
in order to legitimize racism as a pseudoscience. But there were two other major attempts uh, by Northern whites to ensure that blacks could not gain wealth as well. The first I like to talk about is one in which we look at how wealth is accumulated for most families, and that is through home ownership and their communities. There was a practice of what was called redlining. So I like to talk about this and then uh, talk about another issue, which was destruction of black centers of wealth through race-based massacres that were hidden from the greater public and hidden from history. Redlining uh, really is the social engineering of black ghettos. Redlining represented what they call structural racism. And it was built into the system of an organized society, such as law enforcement, banking, education, city planning, medicine, housing, as well as organizations that give power to provide a sense of belonging. Redlining came against all of those things for black people. Uh, all of these disciplines conspired to limit one's home ownership and the accumulation of wealth in order to ensure that blacks will live in high crime areas and live in a state of depravity and that these things will plague the black community. The University of Minnesota provided a, a really good research uh, which illustrates this point. They show a map, uh, a map index of uh, Minneapolis and it was produced sometime in 1935 and 1940, but practice goes back to 1910, of color coding areas in the city. It shows the practice of shading in red parts of the city that were deemed undesirable for investment by banks and other businesses. And this practice is now referred to as redlining. This practice ensured that there would be no investment by the city in those communities. There were four colors on the map. The four colors of the map were green for the best, blue for still desirable, uh, yellow uh, for definitely declining, and then red for hazardous. Now, other areas were also noted uh, that were underdeveloped or business or industrial districts. Blacks moving north were only allowed to live in areas designated in red. That would mean that would be those areas that were considered hazardous. Blacks can only live there. A 1934 homeowners uh, loan corporation document calls, quote, gradual infiltration of Negroes in Asi Asiatics, they call them, uh, uh, would be enforced uh, through redlining. Um, property deeds on properties were constructed preventing ownership by Blacks, Jews, or Asians in areas that were either blue or green, uh, and in some cases yellow, but Blacks were only limited to the red. This type of social engineering, I call it, ensures properties owned by whites would have higher property values. Those who lived in blue and green areas, even for the same structure, home, uh, same number of square feet and all of this, uh, those properties would have higher property values for the same types of buildings. And blacks would have lower property values because they lived in red areas. 
and have little to no wealth, very little investment in the community, fewer grocery stores, and access to many other the amenities that make a community desirable. And this practice goes all the way back to 1910 and spread throughout the entire nation. Today's cities still reflect the practice that has kept black home ownership stifled, hobbling, and preventing intergenerational wealth. There's a lot more to be said about this issue, but I'm going to move on uh, because we only get 30 minutes in our podcast, and um, I want to talk about the other uh, form of obstruction uh, to black wealth uh, that indicated this attitude towards anti-blackness, and that would be massacring, massacring the people, destroying the their property, destroying their um, businesses, and even killing their bodies. Although white establishments ensured that blacks would not have the same wealth as whites, let's take a closer look at this type of social engineering as well. Uh, black communities, uh, one black community I like to talk about is um, the community called Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, and talk about the Tulsa massacre from 1921, uh, in which uh, whites killed over 300 blacks within an area referred to as Black Wall Street. You might have heard about this. It's been in the news a lot. This massacre also included the destruction of scores of businesses, banks, even hospitals, and hundreds of homes that sustained the Black community. This massacre included acts of terror by white government officials, white businessmen, white medical professionals, and a cross-section of the white community where people traveled there with guns, and even our government itself uh, leased and deputized uh, crop dusters. Those would be planes that sprayed insecticides over crop crops and gave them bombs in order to drop on black homes. First time this country has ever, bom- ever been bombed uh, prior to Pearl Harbor was uh, during the Tulsa race massacre and these were black people that were being bombed and the same thing in uh, rosewood there was a rosewood massacre in 1923 the Atlanta massacre of uh, 1923 as well and even in new york uh, there was a massacre uh, in 1863 uh, to oppose being drafted into the war uh, whites fought against government but eventually turned all that onto black citizens and over 100 black people were killed in Manhattan. So I'd like to uh, end here with a brief mention of another policy that blacks and other peoples fought to create to restore the rights of blacks and the quality of life uh, for all people that have benefited. Um, And that is the practice of what is called affirmative action. This program created many opportunities, not only for blacks, But for women, regardless of their color, for LGBTQ communities and individuals living in those communities, and improve many communities by ensuring that so many people designated uh, by race or by sexual preference or by gender could be hired and the jobs be protected. But of course, um, because of the attitudes of anti-blackness, These programs and these policies have also been under attack and even eliminated in some universities and in some cities. 
So uh, I can remember many years ago, I worked in the accounting department of a national candy company in Chicago. I performed very well at this company to the point where they rewarded me with a trip to Palm Springs with the company officers and the top regional sales reps. One gentleman, a British immigrant sitting at a table was resentful of my presence. And after a few drinks, he could not hold back his disdain. He stated, you are an affirmative action hired. That's what he told me. You were hired because of affirmative action. My response was, I am or are you? Which one of us truly benefits from the policies of our government and the policies of our employers from the color of their skin? I had the best numbers and productivity in my department. He simply showed up as a guest of one of the sales reps. So which one of us really truly benefited? from affirmative action. Well, this has been another episode of BMF. I hope to uh, have another episode and look at these issues as time uh, lends itself to me and I still have time to do these things. Uh, This is Nathaniel Gillum signing off and looking forward to our next time on Black Men's Friday. Take care. Mm